If you have a Bible with you, turn with me in it to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16. We are continuing our series this morning called The Gospel in the Last Place that you would expect to find it. And I want to welcome those of you who are joining us by our podcast, and I want to welcome those of you who are joining us uh, listening to our app. One of the questions that people often ask about life is, why is there so much suffering in life? And of course, part of the answer to that is that that's not how God intended life. It is a part, uh, theologically, it's a it's one of the consequences of the fall in Genesis, chapters, uh, in Genesis chapter 3. But for people who are in a relationship with God through the cross of Christ, Exodus 16 tells us there, that there is a whole lot more to suffering than meets the eye. In Exodus chapter 16, uh, Israel is in a desert. And that's important because in addition to being a literal place, the desert is often used in the Bible uh, symbolically to refer to times of suffering, times of despair, times of of very hard trials, times of very dry times in life. And so I want you to start reading with me, if you would, at Exodus chapter 16 and verse 2. It says, In the desert the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only... We had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you've brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. You guys remember that what's happened is that they have been rescued from slavery in Egypt. They have uh, crossed the Red Sea. And God is intending to lead them on to a specific land so that they can have uh, not only a a national identity, but a geographic identity as well. But along the way to this land, he leads them into a desert, and as it happens, they are going to be in this desert for 40 years. They don't know that yet, but they are. They're going to be in this desert for 40 years. Why? The question is why. Why in the world would God lead these people into such a difficult and into such an uncomfortable place? I want you to notice What happens to the people, you may have already noticed it when you read it, but did you notice what happens to the people when hunger hits? They begin to grumble. And essentially what they say is, same thing that we saw them say last week. Essentially what they say is, life was so much better back in Egypt when we were slaves. Do you remember them saying that last week? If you were here last week, they said the exact same thing. And and we said last week, they said, this is delusional. They didn't like life back in Egypt. They hated it. They, they, they cried out to God. They wanted freed from slavery in Egypt. But here they're saying, oh, it was so wonderful. Well, that's delusional. And, and if you're familiar with the language of addiction, that's exactly what they're doing here. See, when getting out from under the enslavement of addiction gets hard, the thing that you're addicted to begins to distort reality so that the addiction becomes a fond memory instead of a terrible memory. And that's what's happening to Israel. They were enslaved. And now all of a sudden, it's the greatest thing in the world. This is, this is the language of addiction. Here's the thing. I want you to understand this. Okay, You might want to write this down someplace. God can get people out of slavery in an instant. But it takes a process to get the slavery out of people. Okay, you get that? God can get people out of slavery in an instant, but it takes a process to get the slavery out of people. 
You see, as soon as Israel crossed the Red Sea, they were no longer slaves. That was done. It was over in an instant. Yet here they are, verse 2 tells us, just about a month and a half out of Egypt, and they're finally remembering their slavery. What's happening here is that they haven't learned how to be free. They're Like they're free in principle, right? But they're not free in practice. And years later, um, Moses, just before he dies, he, he looks back on this. He, he reflects on the meaning of this time in the desert. And he says this. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. You don't have to turn there. We'll put it up here on the screen. He says, remember how the Lord... Uh, your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. In other words, what Moses is telling these people, God, see, see, God didn't have to understand. God didn't have to learn what was in their hearts. He didn't have to test them to see for himself. What Moses is telling the people is that the purpose for the wilderness, the desert, was that they didn't know their own heart. They still thought of themselves as slaves. And so the the purpose for this experience in the desert was education, counseling, training. Because even though you can get people out of slavery in an instant, it takes a process to get slavery out of people. A person can believe in Christ in an instant. You may be here this morning and maybe you've never believed in Christ. You you could this morning. Your whole life can change. Your whole eternal destiny uh, can change. You you hear the gospel and you respond to it. And suddenly you're free from slavery to sin and death in principle. But in practice, you are still very much a slave to things. Right? Like if you were were an alcoholic before you met Christ, you're still going to be an alcoholic after you meet Christ. And if you were enslaved to the approval of others before you met Christ... You're still going to be enslaved to the approval of others after you meet Christ. And like if you, if you were a performance addict before you met Christ, you're still going to be a performance addict after you meet Christ. Because it takes, it takes a process, often a very long process, to get that slavery out of you. You've been freed in principle, but it takes a process to get the slavery out of you. And here's the thing, the process the process often doesn't begin until you until you enter into a desert experience. Until the slavery makes you hit bottom or until somebody does something to you very wrong or until maybe even tragedy hits in some way. The process really doesn't begin until you until you hit the desert. Those of you who, who, who were in our uh, 12-step to spiritual growth class this last Wednesday night may remember me saying that we suffer to get well. It's in the deserts when the process begins, when you begin to appropriate the principle into your practice. Theologians call that the process of sanctification. You and I might just call it, you know, the We might just call it withdrawal, or we might call it the transformation process, the inner process of transformation. And so so I asked a moment ago the question, why would God lead Israel into this desert? Why sometimes does he lead us into deserts? The answer is 
that the purpose of the desert is to get the slavery out of you. The slavery to whatever you've been enslaved to all of your life. Performance, approval, drugs or alcohol, sex, um, worry, anxiety, control. I mean, there's greed. You know, any number of things. Success. There's all these things that you've been enslaved to. And you've been freed from them. Christ says, none of it makes any difference anymore. But you don't know that you've been freed from it yet. You don't know how to live it out yet. You don't know how to appropriate the principle of freedom into your life. And the purpose of the deserts is to get the slavery out of you. And I, and I want you to understand this because I know, you know some of you might be asking, well, does that mean that God is the author of my suffering? No, not at all. Without ever becoming the author of suffering, God brings, and we talked about this in the last series that we're in, God brings the external brokenness of the world into relationship with the internal brokenness of your soul to transform you, to turn you into someone great. If you indeed will cooperate with him, that's what he wants to do, is to turn you into someone great. Which is exactly what he's, what he's doing with Israel here. He, he uses the desert Interestingly enough, if you go back to Genesis chapter uh, 1 and 2 and you look at the story of creation, notice, you'll notice something. God doesn't create deserts. Everything God creates flourishes. He didn't create the desert. Deserts came as a result of man's disobedience, man's rebellion against God uh, in Genesis chapter 3. And then if you notice at the end of the book of the Bible, excuse me, at the end of the book of Revelation in the Bible, you'll notice that there are no deserts there either. Because when God comes and recreates the world, he will do so. There will only be no deserts. God didn't create deserts. Suffering is, is part of the consequences of man's rebellion. So God is never the author of that. He just uses suffering to show us our brokenness and to heal us of our brokenness. That's the purpose of desert experiences. Now what I want to show you in the next few minutes is, is the process. I want to show you some things about the process of transformation. How when you're in the desert, uh, you change. How God uses desert experiences in your life to change you. And I want to look at, if you would, look, at, look down to uh, chapter 16, verse 4, if you would. Exodus chapter 16, verse 4. The text says that then the Lord said to Moses... Because remember, the people are crying out. They're hungry. They're crying out for food. He says, then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. Now, if you would, skip down to verse 31. Verse 31. The text says that the people of Israel called the bread manna. It was like white coriander seed, and it tasted like wafers made with honey. So it was sweet. Maybe it's kind of like, he's ever eat vanilla wafers or something? I don't know. Maybe that's what it tasted like. I don't know. But it tasted, it tasted sweet. Now, this, this is fascinating to me for a couple of reasons. One is that you're finding something in the desert that you would never expect to find in the desert, bread. 
Like, that's something you would never expect to find there. Now, interestingly, if you will contrast that, back in the fertile Nile River Valley that they just came from, where you would expect to find bread, all you would find if you went back there now is after, after the plagues that God brought upon Egypt, all you would find is barrenness. Bread in the, de- in the desert, barrenness in the fertile Nile River Valley, which is the Bible's way of making a point. Here's the point. that The absence of God can make the best circumstances barren, while the presence of God can make the worst circumstances sweet. The absence of God. You could be, whatever your wildest dreams are, you could be as rich as you want to be. You could be as successful and as famous as you want to be. But if God's not part of that, that would feel barren, empty, meaningless, hopeless. But you can be in the worst circumstances that you can imagine. And because God is there with you, he can make it, he can make it sweet. And some of you know that. Because you've been through some deserts that were long and hard. And yet, in the midst of that desert experience, you experienced God's presence and his care in ways that you never would have otherwise. And you changed there. You changed in those moments. And while you never would have chosen that experience that you went through, right? Like you would never say, oh man, I wish that would happen again. You would never have chosen it. You also wouldn't change it. And you might even find yourself saying, I'm grateful for that experience because it changed me. It did something in me that nothing else in my life could have done. I came out of that more courageous. I came out of that more strong. I came out of it more compassionate. I have more empathy for people than I ever had before having come through that. You've experienced the fact that even in the worst circumstances, God can make those circumstances sweet. But there's something else fascinating uh, about this text, and, and it's, it's, the, it's the manna itself is fascinating to me, the bread it, itself. And I want to show you four quick things that the manna teaches us about the transformation process that God takes us through when we find ourselves in the midst of, of a desert experience. You may be in a desert experience right now. I want to show you four things that the manna teaches us about the transformation process that you need to know and understand. And here's the first one. Let's just start with this one. The transformation process requires action on our part. Did you notice this? Um, Up to this point, in Israel's deliverance from Egypt, God's done everything. They've been passive, really. All they had to do, you know, remember the last night, the last plague that came on Egypt? All they had to do... All Israel had to do was hide in their houses behind the blood that was on the doorpost, the blood of the lamb that was on the doorpost. You remember that? All they had to do was hide. It was passive. When God parted the Red Sea, all they had to do was walk through it. I mean, they they didn't do anything. They just walked through what God had already done. Now, though, suddenly, they have to work cooperatively with God. He provides the bread, their substance, excuse me, their sustenance, but they have to gather it. Uh, if, if they don't want to die. And there's rules about how they are to collect this bread. And God provides the strength, but they have to go out and get it to survive, right? I mean, they, can't just, they don't just lay on the ground and then the manna just drops in their, in their mouth. They don't just lay there like that. I mean, they have to go out and they have to, 
they have to, to gather it if they're going to survive. This is, that's important because desert experiences, you and I both know this, desert experiences can make you or they can break you. Like I've seen people that have gone through desert, desert experiences and they become, in the midst of that desert, very bitter, very angry and cynical and uh, broken. But I've also known people who've gone through desert experiences and they've come out much stronger, more courageous, deeper, wiser, um, more compassionate. What's the difference? What's the difference? Well, those who actively cooperate with God and they go to the strength that he provides, the sweetness that he provides, they come out better in the end than those who do nothing, right? I mean, like, if you're, if you're going through a tough time and you just, kind of, you just kind of sit back and you just go, you know, God, zap me, make me more joyful, make me more happy, there's no, there's no holy zapping. That doesn't happen. you got to work at it. you got to go to the strength that he provides. Transformation, you see, is a cooperative effort between man and God. This is what Paul means when he says, he says, he says this in Philippians, and boy, this used to confuse me. A lot, but he said, he, he, I, I understand it now. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, what he's saying is appropriate the principle into your practice. You've been saved. Now work the slavery out of you, cooperating with God, using the sustenance, the bread that he provides. You have to go to the strength. Salvation, you see, is, is completely a work of God. You're saved not by your work, but by God's work. He does the work. But, and that happens in an instant, right? Salvation can happen, like, right now, in an instant. But transformation, getting the slavery out of you, is a process that requires action on your part. Okay, that's one of the things that the manna teaches us about the transformation process. Here's the second thing. The transformation process requires thoughtful reflection over truth. It requires thoughtful reflection over truth. And let me tell you why I mention this. There is a sense that Christianity is anti-intellectual. That it is really pretty dumb. And the church is part of that. The church is the, part of the responsibility for that lands on the church. Because that's often how we end up communicating truth. That could not be further from the truth. Again, in the book of Deuteronomy, which, by the way, the book of Deuteronomy often helps us understand the book of Exodus. Anyway, Moses, just before he dies, book of Deuteronomy, again, he says this in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. He says, God humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither, which neither you nor your ancestors had known. To teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, what Moses is saying here is that the manna represented the word of God. This manna that God provided in the desert, it represented the word of God. It represented truth. It represented scripture. And you see, some people make the mistake of thinking that truth is just for cognitive learning. We just learn it. We know it in our heads. But what Moses is telling Israel here in Deuteronomy 8 is that, you, is that they needed to learn truth, yes, but they needed to learn to turn truth into bread. 
they needed to learn to tur- they needed to learn to turn truth into sustenance during their desert experiences which means that truth is more than just a cognitive thing you must learn to think reflect uh with, with reflection on truth. You, you, you've, got, you've got to use thoughtful reflection with truth. You've got to chew on it. You've got to meditate on it. You've got to, you've got to work it into your lives. You've got to think about it deeply. And you see, Christianity, you've got to understand this. The gospel is simple. It is simple. But it's not anti-intellectual. Uh, it requires deep thought to understand it. One of my favorite sayings is, is this, and, and it's, not, it's, not, um, it's not unique to me. Somebody said it, and I just, I just didn't really care to go figure out who said it. But I've, I, I've, I, I love this saying, and it goes like this. Simplicity on this side of complexity is worthless. But simplicity on the other side of complexity is worth everything that you had to go through to get it. And let me, let, me explain what that, let me explain what that means with a story. Uh, many years ago, many, many years ago, um, I sat down, I went to lunch with an older man that I knew that I deeply respected. He'd been a Christian for many years and walked with God through some very tough times in his life. And at the time, um, I was working in children's ministry, and we were talking about that. And I told him one of the most fun things... Um, was to listen to kids sing that, you know, the old Sunday school song, uh, Jesus loves me, this I know. Or the Bible tells me so, that's right. And I just told him, I said, man, it's just, it's just really sweet to hear kids sing that. I don't, I said, I just really love hearing him sing. And as the conversation went on, he began to speak about his wife's death and how painful that experience was to him. And the loneliness that he went through and the sorrow and just he described it as really as a desert experience for him and during that lunch I asked him I said what's the single most important thing that you walked away from that experience with if you could just if you could just lay one truth on me what's the single most important thing that you walked away from that experience with and you know tears are Tears are coming down his eyes. And he said this. He said, here's the truth. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. And you see, the, the, words, the words were the same simple words that the kids, that kids sang. You, you could find any kid that's gone to Sunday school and, you know, they can sing that song. And it's sweet. It really is. But he said those words on the other side of complexity. Which gave those words far deeper meaning. It made them profound. They weren't cliche. They weren't rote. uh, They weren't stupid. Simple. And yet profound at the same time. Deeply thoughtful. It was truth that had moved from simply cognitive truth into bread, into strength and sweetness in the last place that you would have ever expected to find it in his life, in the desert of his wife's death. 
right? You see, the process of transformation requires this kind of thoughtful appropriation of truth. It's why one of the core values of City Church is, uh, we, we state it very clearly, we say that intellectual integrity is one of our core values. We don't want, any, want anybody to think that when they come to our church that you can just check your brain at the door, that intellectual integrity uh, matters because the gospel requires thinking deeply. It requires thinking out the implications of, the, of truth, of the gospel that you believe on a daily basis. And, I, and if I can, just let me say this. I want you to contrast that, that the gospel requires you to think it out, to work it out, to turn it into bread that you can sustain. And so we think out the implications of it, of it for your life. I want you to contrast that for a moment with the person who thinks that human beings are the result of an impersonal evolutionary process. I want you to think about this for just a moment. For that person who thinks that we're just the result of an impersonal evolutionary process, for instance, love for them is really nothing more than an illusion. It's just a chemical reaction, right? It can't mean anything. It's just a chemical reaction. It's so that you can, it's so that you can uh, procreate. It's so that evolution can continue. But it doesn't really mean anything. Things like justice and civil rights and women's rights and right and wrong in general are just evolutionary constructs for them. They're not real. They're just constructs. And think about this. If, you, if, if they were to think out those principles, if they would think out what they really believe, it would leave them with a sense of meaningless and ho- meaninglessness and hopelessness and pointlessness. So they have to refuse to think out their implications of their beliefs. Christianity is exactly the opposite. Christianity says don't refuse to think out what you believe. Think it out. Work it out. Turn it into sweetness. Turn it into sustenance. Let it become hope for you. Let it become meaning for you in the middle of your deserts. And desert experiences do that for us. They, they, they challenge us to think what we believe out. Not to not think what we believe out. That's the second thing that deserts, that's the second thing that the manna teaches us about the transformation process. Here's the third thing that the manna teaches us. This will be a little quicker. It says, it, it's this, that the process of transformation requires moment by moment dependence upon the Lord. Did you notice, did you notice okay, that the manna comes daily. Like, like it didn't come just like at one time. Here's all the manna you're going to need for 40 years, and then they just go collect it. No, it, it comes daily, day by day. They have to go out, and they have to collect all the manna that they would need. The fact that it didn't come all at once, but it came daily, required the people of Israel continually to go back to the Lord for their strength. Like it wasn't something they could forget. We need the Lord for our strength. They could not forget that. They had to go every day to get that strength. In the New Testament, Jesus was almost certainly thinking about this when he was teaching his disciples to pray. And he said, he said say this, give us this day our daily what? Bread. Right. What he was teaching the disciples when he was teaching us too as we read it is that we need moment by moment dependence upon the Lord as we go through desert experiences. Now, here's the thing, and I really want you to, okay, would you just do me this favor? 
Like whatever to-do list you're going through in your mind right now, whatever you're thinking about about lunch, I think you're really hungry maybe, and you're thinking, oh, I can't wait to go to lunch. Would you just put all of that aside for just a moment? Whatever you're worried about, maybe you're worried about your kids today, maybe you're worried about your job, I don't know. Whatever you're worried about, would you just turn that off? Just for one moment, turn it off, okay? And listen to this. What makes a desert experience a desert experience is that the things that you've built your life around, like all of your idols, all of your dependencies, all of your attachments, all of your addictions, what makes a desert experience a desert experience is that they're not there anymore. Or they're being threatened in some way, right? And at first, what you want, when you go into that desert, at first, what you want more than anything in the world is for God to give those back to you. God, give me that relationship back. God, give me my job back. God, give me whatever it is. Give me my money back. Give me my success back. Give me whatever, whatever. At first, that's what you're praying for all the time. God, give it back. But what you learn in the desert is that it's not the things that you always relied on that you need. It's a relationship that you need. So that God changes from the one whom you go to for what you think you need, like a vending machine, to the one you go to because he is what you need. Do you see the difference? You see the difference? He is the sustenance and the strength that helps you survive the desert. That's what the manna teaches us. That we need moment by moment dependence, relationship upon the Lord to get through deserts and to be transformed internally. And then finally this one. Last thing that the manna teaches us about the transformation process is that the process requires community. The process requires community. Now, I skipped over this, so I want to go back and I want to show you this. If you would, look at Exodus 16. Look at verse 16. Chapter 16, verse 16. And the text says that, uh, it says, This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer. I don't, I don't know what an omer was, but, you know, whatever amount that was. It says, take an omer for each person that you have in your tent. Verse 17. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered a lot, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. So here, here's, let me explain that. So a 6'4 guy with great big huge hands... He goes out and he gathers a whole bunch of manna. And then a little four foot six boy with very small hands goes out and he collects manna. And they come back with different amounts, obviously, right? But they don't go straight back to their tents with their manna. They go and they pile it in a large pile and then they distribute it out by the omer to the community. And everyone had enough. The point is that the process of collecting the necessary strength and sustenance that everyone needed in the desert required the whole community 
took everybody in the community to help one another survive in this desert and to, to, to find the sustenance and strength and sweetness that they needed in this desert experience. Here's the thing. Look, I know that there are some of you, many of you, uh, who come here on Sunday mornings and you listen to the sermon and then you go back into your own life and maybe you think about the sermon some and maybe you analyze it and use it to analyze your own life and, and you try to make your life better from something that you heard in the summer, uh, excuse me, in the sermon between Sundays. And the thing is, though, you really don't want accountability and you really don't want anyone nosing into your life. Right? I mean, because we're, we've all got this American individualistic thing going where we all want to be cowboys who can do it on our own. But I, I can't emphasize this enough. You will never experience transformation alone. You want more joy, you want more happiness, you want more peace. And then you go home and you're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work on it. I'm going to get there. And you try to do it alone. And the thing is, you will never find it alone. You just won't. It takes a community. You, you get together with people who are on the same journey that you're on. And you talk about the truth that you learned. And you beat it into each other's heads. And you accept each other when you fall down. And you hold each other accountable. And that's how we work the slavery out of us. It's in the context of community. You'll die in the desert without community. You will. You're not always going to be strong enough to carry yourself. And you know that sweet little, that, you know, little poem about how you look back and there's the footprints on the sand and it's God carrying you through the hogwash. The only way you make it through the desert is that you, you know, you know what God provides? It's God, but you know what he provides? He provides other people. And so you look back in the sand and you see like a dozen footprints of other people that have been carrying you through the desert. It takes a community. Transformation doesn't happen alone. This is one of the things we've been learning, we'll learn in our 12 steps to spiritual growth class. That we don't, we don't grow alone, we grow together and that's why on the banners around the room you know we start with the word believe that happens in an instant you can believe in an instant you can believe this morning you can be freed from slavery to sin and death this morning but the process of getting the slavery out of you it's a long process and the second thing that we say on our banners is you've got to experience community you need people around you you need to beat truth into your life with other people helping you beat it into your life and turning it into bread turning it into sweetness turning it into sustenance for you you can't do it alone transformation in the desert requires action on our part it requires thoughtful reflection over truth, it requires moment by moment dependence upon the Lord, and it requires community. I get, there's so much more I'd love to say about this, um, but we need to close. Unless you guys would be willing to give me another hour. You guys willing to give me another hour? No, you're not willing to do that. Let me just close with this. Earlier, I made the point, you guys, if you were listening, you, you remember this, that the manna symbolized uh, the word of God. It symbolized scripture. It symbolized truth. 
You remember me saying that? Interestingly, in the New Testament, John chapter 1 refers to Jesus as the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. It refers to Jesus as the Word. Here's what it means. Here's what that means. In other words, in Jesus, all of Scripture finds its fulfillment and expression. In other words, he embodied all of what Scripture says in, in, in him. He embodies all of it. Now, here's what's really interesting. One day, Jesus was talking to his disciples about this specific thing, about manna, about the manna that the people received, that the people of Israel received in the desert. And as he was talking to them about that manna, he said this about himself. He said in John chapter 6, verse 35, he said, I am the bread of life. <laughs> in other words, the manna ultimately pointed to Jesus, the bread of life. He is the strength. He is the sweetness. He's the relationship that we need in the desert. He is the one who restores us to sanity. He is the one that sorts through the mess of our lives and heals the mess of our lives as we cooperate with him. Here's what I want you to understand. Most people only think of the gospel as pertaining to the moment of salvation. So like, like, okay, the gospel matters when I receive Jesus Christ as my Savior, when I believe upon him, when I get saved. But they don't think of the gospel as pertaining to the rest of their life. But I want you to notice something. In their deliverance from slavery in Egypt, the people of, uh, people of Israel hid behind the blood of the lamb on the doorposts, right? Okay? And the lamb pointed to Jesus. That's essentially the gospel. But I want you to notice also that now, after they have been delivered from slavery in principle, but they're, and, and they're learning how to get the slavery out of them in practice, they need the manna that God provides for strength and sustenance. And the manna pointed to Jesus, the gospel the gospel there. Jesus is the bread of life. And the bread of life was broken on a Roman cross. And the bread of life experienced a desert of forsakenness that you and I will never have to experience because of what the bread of life did for us on the cross. And as a result, our deserts can become places of strength and sweetness not forsakenness, as we feast on the one who is the bread of life. And there it is, the gospel, life in the desert. Bread in the desert. In the last place that you would ever expect to find it. Would you close with me uh, with a word of prayer? Our Lord Jesus Christ, We are humbled by the forsakenness that you experienced on the cross. That in that moment, the Father forsook you in a way that we will never have to experience. You were lonely in a desert in a way that we will never have to experience because of what you did for us on the cross. And so we exalt you this morning. 
we affirm that you are the bread of life broken on a cross for us. It is nothing but your body broken, nothing but your blood that saves us, but it's also nothing but you that can sustain us in the middle of the desert experiences. No one but you can change us and transform us. You were the man. We saw that. And we believe that. And you are our man. Strength and sweetness in the middle of our desert. I pray for people who are here this morning that whatever desert that they would find themselves in, Lord, that they would learn to go to you. That they would learn to go to you moment by moment, dependence upon you. It's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship and pray today. Amen.